Chapter 15, Part 1, in the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Peter on... I want to introduce you to a friend. This is Paisley Post. Say hello to Paisley. Wow, this is great. So she's really excited to be up here. And <laughs> as you can tell, Paisley, can I ask you, how old are you? Right now I'm nine, but in a few weeks I'm going to be ten. When are you going to be ten? Um, January 17th. Okay, January 17th. So when that happens and you see her at church, please wish her a happy birthday. But Paisley, can I ask you a question as a ten-year-old? I want to know, what does success look like for a ten-year-old? Well, to me, success is like achieving a greatness. Greatness. Nice. What kind of greatness are we talking about? Well, uh, greatness that, like, I can achieve is, like, getting a good score on my test yeah. or, like, winning a soccer tournament or a basketball game. Yeah. Did you win soccer yesterday? Did you guys win or lose? Tied. You tied? Okay. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't seem like it makes you very happy. Yeah. No, but that's, that's greatness. I'm pretty competitive, too. Your mom tells me you're very competitive. But let me ask you something, maybe a little bit deeper, if it's okay. Um, what do you think success looks like in terms of our relationship with Jesus? What does that look like? Well, I don't really know, but a successful Christian is like someone who goes to church every Sunday mm. and reads the Bible and prays. That's great. Reads the Bible and prays. That's great. I think you're really off to a great start. In fact, we're going to look at the very last of the seven I am statements that Jesus talks about. He's going to say that he is the vine and we are the branches. All right. And like the other I am statements, the other six, the word vine is synonymous to the word life. So when Jesus says, I am the vine, he's basically saying to you and to me, I am life to you. I am life to you, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so when you think about this, when he says that we are alive, I think when you think about, especially in the beginning of the year, a lot of you, I think you've set New Year's resolutions for yourself. A lot of you have. We do that typically at the beginning of the year. I think one of the reasons why we do that is because we're naturally wired to succeed. Like God has sort of wired us in certain ways to succeed. A friend of mine said that he went to the gym this week. He couldn't properly work out because there were just too many people in the gym. Why does that happen? Because I think a lot of us, we want to set goals because we like the satisfaction of succeeding. And when we look at this passage today, the spiritual word for success is actually fruit. Jesus is going to encourage us that we are to bear fruit. He's going to actually say that. And in fact, the passage we're going to read today, we're going to see that Jesus is going to encourage you and I that in order for us to really bear fruit, we got to learn to remain in him. Now, that's not easy to do because remaining in him sounds okay to us when we just listen to it. But the reality is to remain in Jesus 24-7, that's hard. A lot of us, we don't mind remaining in Jesus maybe 24-1, like on a Sunday. But when we go to school on Monday, do you really want to remain in Jesus? Do you really want to remain in him when you go into work on a Monday or when you go to your classrooms in college? Do you really want to remain in Jesus? Jesus is going to teach us that it's so vital, and so he's going to teach us why first. Because we got to answer the why. Why should you remain in Jesus 24-7? And then the last part we're going to talk about, Paisley, is how. How can we begin to remain in Jesus Christ? And so we're going to read John 15. Paisley's going to read John 15, verses 1 through 17. We're going to read from the New Living Translation. So can we give our full attention to Paisley as she reads the first 17 verses? John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that, of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do not bear fruit, so they produce even more. 
You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it was severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I have no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my commandment. Love each other. That's fantastic. Let's give Paisley a round of applause. Thank you so much, Paisley. Thank you. Will you bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer? Let's pray. Lord, uh, this was some of the last moments where you had with your disciples. And this was something that was so important for you that you wanted them to know this. And Lord, if we're going to be honest, it's not easy for us to remain in you all the time. Because there's so many things that compete for our attention and our passions. And so, God, I pray that you'll help us to understand this text. And I even pray for the youngest to the oldest here today will be able to comprehend how deep and how relevant this is for all of our lives today. And on the very first, day, very first Sunday of 2024, God, I pray that we would live our lives this year really strongly trying to remain in you in everything that we do. And so, Father, I pray if there are any dark spirits or forces in this room right now, we bind it in the name of Jesus, and we command it to go to where Jesus sends it, be gone. And Jesus, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. The word remain in this passage appears 10 times. That's a lot. That's a lot of times one word appears in a passage. And you know this because you've been here for a while. Whenever you see repetition like that in the Bible, what you need to realize is that it's actually an important part of the passage, that you got to pay attention. Jesus uses this word and he encourages his disciples that we are to always remain in him. Why? Why does he always want us to remain in him in this way? I think what you and I have to realize is this. Jesus actually thinks the world of you. He really wants to be in a relationship with you. And he was reminding his disciples how important that was to him. And so he's saying to them, he's saying, would you please remain in me? Not just so that you can feel like you're a good Christian. No, remain in me because I love you and I want to be in a relationship with you. And in order for this thing to work out is if you're actually choosing to remain in me. Because don't worry about me. I will always remain in you, but I need you to remain in me. And that's why Jesus is encouraging us to do this. And so why should you and I remain in Jesus? It's a really important question. Why? The first one is so that we can bear fruit. 
The reason why you and I should remain in Jesus Christ is so that we can bear fruit. Now let's look at the first eight verses again. And I want you to pay attention to how many times the word fruit is repeated in this passage. All right, verse 1. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. Jesus uses the word fruit six times in this passage. When you look at the entire pericope in the 17 verses, he uses it seven times. So this idea of remaining and bearing fruit is so key here. Again, Jesus says he is the vine, that if you want to bear fruit, you got to stay close to him. A vine, again, is life, is life. And, and, and it's the things that we believe, that, that we believe that Jesus is the only pathway towards life. And I think, really, if we're going to be honest, a lot of us, there are a lot of things in which you believe today will give you life other than Jesus Christ. Let's just be honest. Who or what in your life today do you actually believe is going to bring you that kind of life that you might be searching for? You and I were all created to find life in Jesus Christ. This was a natural desire that God's given to us. But for a lot of us, because we're choosing not to remain in Jesus Christ, we are trying to find that life outside of Jesus. So where are we looking for that kind of life? For some of you, it could be your parents. You find your life in your parents, especially if you're really young. Your parents are your whole world. I get it. But I'm telling you right now, your parents will never bring you life. They just won't. Listen to them, but they're never going to bring you life. All right? For some of you, it, it could be about getting good grades. That you believe that when you get good grades, that is life. I'm telling you, it don't matter if you're a 4.0. And now I know that some kids can get to 5.0, which I think is crazy. But don't matter how good your grades are, that's not going to bring you life. It's good, but it's not going to bring you life. For some of you, it's about maybe going into a good college. Right? Going to a good college and graduating from there. Because those are the things that you believe is the way that's going to lead to a pathway of success. It don't matter what kind of college you go to. I'm telling you right now, it's never going to bring you life. All right? For some of you, it's about finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Meeting somebody. And I get it. If you're single, I know that's a desire that you have. It's a desire that we all have. But I'm telling you right now, there is no way your boyfriend or girlfriend is going to bring you life. For some of you, you thought it was your spouse, your wife, or your husband. And you know as well as I do, there is no way that your spouse can bring you life in that way. We just don't. We just will fall. We will fail at that all the time. For a lot of us, it's about this chasing this desire to want to, get married, uh, to want to seek approval and acceptance from other people. That's a real dangerous place. When you start to live your life wanting the acceptance and approval of other people, and you live your life so much for that thinking that when the more people accept you and approve of you, the happier you're going to be, the more life you're going to live, that is a dangerous, dangerous proposition to live by, my friends. It really is. If you're married, you think maybe having children is going to bring you life. Those are all good things. Even this desire, some of you, you want to be wealthy. You want to live well, get a good job, succeed and do well. I'm not saying those are bad things. They're good things. But you know what? None of it's going to bring you life. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. 
None of that's going to bring you life. The only thing that can truly bring you life is Jesus Christ. It's it. Jesus is the only way that you and I can have life. And the sad reality is that there are a lot of us, and I'm not trying to be judgy here because I've been there before, but a lot of us, we don't really believe that in our hearts. We don't believe that Jesus is the only pathway to life. And so we're constantly choosing not to remain in him and remain in other things. And it's only a matter of time before we get further and further more distant towards Jesus Christ and we continue to convince ourselves that he's not the light, that he's not the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus says, if you want to bear fruit, I'm the vine. If you want to bear fruit, you got to come to me and see that I am truly the light. And so what kind of fruit is Jesus talking about? Because that's an important question to answer. What is the fruit that Jesus is encouraging you and I to bear? Paul answers that in Galatians 5, to 23. Here's what he says. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. You see, if you look at this passage, like a lot of you, you look at that list, you see nine things he's listing. You're saying, okay, well, let me pick a few of these. You can't because the fruit of the Spirit is all nine things. Look at verse 22. He uses the singular word fruit. He doesn't say fruits. He says fruit. So the fruit of the Spirit, when Jesus is talking about the love, he's saying it's the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That just represents the fruit of the Spirit. When Jesus says, if you see me as life, if you see me as the vine and you see yourself as the branches, you and I are going to be able to grow in these nine areas. We're going to be able to bear this kind of fruit. And some of you are saying, but you know what? I have some of these already. That's probably just because you're like this. But the fruit of the Spirit is very different. You see, what Jesus is trying to do is he wants you to understand that when you and I bear the fruit of the Spirit, you know what we're bearing? We're bearing Jesus' fruit. So look at what he says. He gives us a little detail to this in verse 11 of John chapter 15. He says, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with what? With my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Jesus is saying bearing fruit. So when you think about these nine things that we just listed here, think about Jesus saying that when you bear this fruit, you're bearing his love. You're going to have his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, his self-control. Do you know how transformed your life will be this year in 2024 if you start to bear the fruit of Jesus Christ? If these nine things would start to grow in your life, it's not something that comes in with you. No, Jesus, you're going to have Jesus' love, Jesus' joy. And that's why he says, you're going to have my joy. And yes, your joy will overflow. Why does Jesus know that? Why does he promise it? Because it's his joy. You're going to have it. You're going to have his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, his self-control. Man, I don't know about you, but I desperately need this for 2024. I can't survive without it. Because when I think about myself, when I don't remain in Jesus, there are many times I'm the complete antithesis of these nine things. I'm not patient. (laughs) I lack a lot of self-control. I have an addictive personality, if you don't know that about me. I'm not gentle many times. And the fruit of the Spirit that Jesus is talking about, you're going to bear fruit if you remain in me. This is the life he's talking about. Now, there is nothing else in this world that can give you these nine things but Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's why Jesus is the vine. That's why he's the vine. And that's why he says that the Father is going to 
break off those branches that don't bear fruit. And it's important that the Father does that because if he doesn't do that, then those branches that don't, that don't bear fruit will contaminate the other branches to not bear any fruit. And then he says the Father will prune you so that you can bear more fruit. Now, pruning is not fun. When you and I go through a pruning process, it's tough. It's actually very difficult for us to go through a pruning process, but we must be open to it as Christians. You and I must always be open to being pruned, right? What does it mean to be pruned? You know what it means? It, what it means is this, because we're all going to go through hardships in our life. When you and I go through hardships in our life, the way we allow Jesus to prune us is that we don't, victim, we don't see ourselves just as a victim, because when you just see yourself as a victim, what you're going to do eventually over time is you're going to find your identity in being a victim. And your identity is so much more than being a victim. Your identity is being a child of God. Your identity is exemplifying these nine beautiful things of the fruit of the Spirit. You're so much more than just being a victim. You are a child of God. And so for us, it's allowing ourselves to remove ourselves from painful situations and saying, God, what are you doing here? What do you want to do in my life here? And let God prune you. Because if we don't do that and we keep seeing ourselves as a victim, what happens over time is we start getting angry at God. We start getting angry at other people. And you always just end up blaming other people for your misfortunes and all those things. It's a dangerous place to be. And so, you know, Pastor Ija, I preached this sermon on, on Wednesday to the staff. And he gave a great story because he's so into wine and vineyards these days. And he went up to Rochester, and he went to a vineyard in Rochester, and he met the owner there. And he talked to the owner, and the owner said this. He said, in Napa Valley and also in Rochester, there are times where we go through seasons of drought. And when you think about somebody who's a farmer of grapes, whenever we go through a season of drought, most people think that that is detrimental to our harvest. He says it's actually not. He says when there's a season of drought, the best grapes are produced. He said the reason why is because when there's no water on top of the soil, the roots will go deeper and will dig into the ground to search for water. And when they go deeper and when they dig into the ground and they find water, the grapes are so much sweeter and tastier and better. Isn't that a great image? That when you and I are willing to be pruned by God, that we will bear fruit. That you and I will truly bear fruit. So don't ever ever get to a place where you just see yourself as a victim. See this as an opportunity that if you will let God prune you, that you can grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Listen, you don't become a disciple when you bear fruit. No. You bear fruit because you are a disciple. And that's why we do this. Right? That's why we do this. When... Um, Growing up as a kid, uh, I grew up in a, a very physically abusive home. And most of you know that because I've shared that with you on a Sunday. But for some of you, it might be new if you're fairly new to this church. My father really struggled with his own emotional woundedness. And my father grew up during the time where Japan occupied Korea in the early 30s. And so he thought, you know, he spoke Japanese. And he thought that was speaking Korean. He had to learn Korean when he went to school because all he spoke was Japanese. He went through hardships because his father was in prison, stepmother would be abusive, and he never dealt with these unresolved emotions. And so one of the ways in how he dealt with it when we came to America was he would drink, and he would get drunk, and then he would get violent on my sisters and I and my mother, of course. And it was a horrible environment to grow up as a little kid. 
But, you know, when we started going to church, like, we just all knew instinctively. They didn't have to tell us, we can never share this with anyone, right? We just can't because shame is such a big part of the Korean culture. So we just keep this under wraps. So I never share that with anyone until I went to college my freshman year. I joined a Christian fellowship group. And we went away on a men's retreat. And there was only five of us. It was a small group. It was four students and one campus pastor. And it was because it was so intimate and I started to get to know these guys, I felt self-safe enough and compelled enough to share. And so I shared what was going on in my, my past and what happened growing up as a kid. And I just started breaking down. I just started crying, right? And when I did that, I was hoping at least the pastor would acknowledge it or at least say, hey, man, thank you for sharing that. But everyone was silent, and about three to five seconds, they just let me cry, and then he just said, next. And I remember when that happened, I just said to myself, I will never share ever again in any Christian setting, in any church setting. It was just too painful. I mean, I just thought even afterwards, maybe as we would eat dinner, somebody would say, hey, man, thank you for sharing that. It really impacted my heart. I'll pray for you. Nobody. They completely ignored what I shared and it just made me feel more shameful. And I said, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to do this. Now, I could have left the ministry because I was so upset. I could have, right? I mean, I could have done that. But you know what God did? Because I took a step back. God was pruning me. He was teaching me to forgive and be okay. And he was reminding me, guess what? That I have some brokenness myself. And a verse that really encouraged me was Proverbs 14, 29. I want to encourage this with you. Especially if you're here today and you're pretty angry with some people and you can't forgive them. I want you to pay attention to Proverbs 14, 29. Look at what it says. People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. So I was upset. I was angry. But what God was trying to do is that he was helping me grow in understanding. Showing me that I also mess up, that I'm also broken, that I have issues. And so I stuck with this ministry for four entire years. I was a part of it. I served as a leader. I was vice president, worship leader, small group leader, you just name it. I did the best I could. And I'm grateful that I did that. You know why? Because I never would have imagined in a million years that God would encourage me to start a church where the church's mission is to be vulnerable. I don't think I would have gotten that. If I didn't stick through this college ministry, if I played victim and started blaming them and left it and God called me to ministry, I never would have gotten the vision for Metro and it's, uh, for Metro without that experience. And that's why this can be a place where you come and when you share your brokenness and your hurts, we will acknowledge you. You will never be ignored. In fact, that's the opportunity where you can actually encounter the perfect strength of God. This ministry was also the first ministry I ever was ever a part of a multi-ethnic type of ministry. And God gave me a taste and see the beauty of what diversity can look like while I was in college. And that helped and informed me when I planted this church metro almost 20-something years later. So what I'm telling you is this. Don't let a hardship go to waste. Take a step back. The beautiful thing about believing in Jesus and knowing that he's the life, the beautiful thing is that when you go through hardships, Jesus doesn't necessarily cause it, but we go through it because we live in a very broken and sinful world. Amen? Amen. Because we live in that kind of world, but, but because Jesus is life, if you take a step back and let him grow you in your understanding, he can breathe life into those things as he prunes you, and you're going to grow in understanding. You're going to learn to love and bear fruit. Amen. It's a beautiful thing. And so that's why you remain in Jesus. Because if you don't remain in Jesus and you go through some hardships, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance because you're just going to keep thinking everyone hates you. And you're going to be so sick and tired of people. You're going to say, I'm done with humans. I just want to go to a lot, an island and be all by myself. Have you ever felt like that before? I'm just sick and tired of people. I just want to go to an island and be all by myself. A lot of people have done that. 
Part of that is because you haven't remained in Jesus Christ. You really haven't. All right? It's a dark, dark place to be when we do that. All right? Second reason why we should remain in Jesus is because he calls us his beloved. He calls us his beloved. Now, the English language doesn't really capture this. But in the Greek, you, you really see it. In verse 15, he says, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slave. You are my friend since I have told you everything the Father told me. All right, let's just take a, a few moments back. If you have your Bibles, just underline that word slave. That word slave means doulos, means, which means slave or servant. Jesus says, you're no longer my servant anymore. When it, comes to intimate, when it comes to our relationship, you're not my servant. And so what I want you to understand is this, because I don't want you to throw away this idea of us being a servant for Jesus. I don't want you to poo-poo that. No, we are servants. When it comes to us rendering our service to Jesus, you and I must always see ourselves as a servant of Jesus Christ. When it comes for us uh, doing works for his kingdom, we must always take the posture of a servant. All right? That's important. But when it comes to our intimacy with Jesus... We are his beloved. That's what you have to see. We are truly his beloved. That word uh, friend in the Greek is phileos. And it's more than just a friend. Because in our culture, we say everyone's our friend. You say somebody at Starbucks is your friend just because he knows what kind of drink you like. They're not your friend. Just because they know what you like to drink, that doesn't make them your friend. No. We say, oh, no, this person is my friend. No. And that's why friend is actually a bad translation. Jesus says, you're not my slave. You are my beloved. And you know what it means to be the beloved? Beloved is somebody who actually knows that they are deeply loved by someone. That's what beloved means. And did you know that God created you and me with a desire to be deeply loved by him? He created that. And if we don't remain in him, you know what's going to happen over time? We're going to look for somebody else on this planet to deeply love us. You are. You're going to look for that for your parents, your siblings, to deeply love you. And I'm here to tell you, they're never going to be able to love you like that. It's just impossible, right? You're going to look for your boyfriend and girlfriend to deeply love you. And in the beginning, it's so good. But after a while, you're going to realize, oh, man, I don't know. I'm not feeling deeply loved anymore. You're going to look for your husband or your wife to deeply love you. And you're going to come to the realization that they just can't deeply love you like the way God can. I love Jenny, but I'm going to be honest. I've come to the conclusion years ago that she's never going to be able to deeply love me the way I want to be loved. And she's come to the conclusion years ago that I can never love her the way she wants to be loved. It's just impossible. And the more she expects that of me and I expect that of her, we're going to keep fighting because we keep failing each other. What we've come to understand is that only God can love us like that. And if I can fill that desire that God's created for me with God, then I can learn to love my wife the way I know God may want me to love her. Even though it's not perfect, it's good enough to allow us to go deeper into our relationship. And even though we've been married for over two decades, we're still into each other. Part of that is because we've been we're allowing ourselves to go deeper in knowing that we are truly God's beloved. A lot of us, we do that even with our friends. And it's really sad because as we get older, when you're young, you don't even think about this. But you will think about it when you get older. Because you're going to think about, do I actually have somebody I can call when I'm struggling in my life? Or this is just me? And we get depressed because we realize we don't have friends that deeply love us. That really deeply love us. I'm here to tell you there's nobody on this, in this world that could ever really deeply love you. It will always fail. The only person that can actually deeply love you and know that you are deeply loved 
is Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? That's it. And that's why he says, you're my beloved. I no longer call you slaves because you are my beloved. I've shared everything with you. You are truly my beloved. And the reason why you should remain in Jesus is so that you can truly know that you are the beloved of Jesus Christ. And it's sad because, honestly, some of us, we question that many times. And I don't know how Jesus could prove it more. I mean, he came and died for us on the cross, literally died for us on the cross because we're his beloved and resurrected from the dead. I don't know what more Jesus could do to convince you today that you are his beloved. The only way you're going to know that is not by Jesus doing more things for you. The only way you're going to know that is if you go to the vine and you remain in him. It's the only way you're going to know the depth of God's love for you. And so why should we remain in Jesus? To bear fruit and to know that we're his beloved. And then how? That's important. So how do we do this then? How do we remain in Jesus? Obeying his commandments. Oh, that's the first thing, obeying his commandments. Look at verse 9. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Jesus says, listen, I've remained in my Father. I've obeyed him. Because I've obeyed him and his commandments, I've remained in his love. So listen, if you obey my commandments, you're going to remain in my love. You see, you don't, you don't love, you don't obey Jesus so that you can be accepted or feel like accepted by him. No, you've already been accepted. Jesus says, I want to be in a relationship with you, so you've got to obey my commandments. I said this last Sunday. I said that when we obey the commandments of Jesus Christ, it connotes value. When you listen to somebody who, who, and you listen to what they tell you to do, it shows that you really value them, that they're that important to you, that you would actually listen to the things that they're commanding you or asking you to do for them. And so that's important for you and I to know that when we commit ourselves to obeying the commandments of Jesus to the best of our ability, because Jesus knows we're going to fail. Peter's going to fail in a couple chapters from now. He's going to deny Jesus. He knew him three times. Peter fails. And guess what? That failure was key because when Jesus failed, I think if he didn't fail like that, I don't think he would have started the first church. I don't think he would have been that bold in Acts, but he allowed Jesus to prune him through that failure. All right? So it's not about perfection, but it's about saying, I'm going to do my best to obey your commands because I know you know what's best for me, and I need to be in this relationship with you at all times. Jesus wants that from us, and so it's about loving him in that way by obeying his commandments. And the last way in how we, um, how we can remain in Jesus and this is his greatest command, all right? So we can put a whole list on what the commands are, but this is it. Love people in this church. That's it. If there's one command that you can say, I'm going to obey in 2024, if you want to remain in Jesus, it's this one. This is why he shares this. He says, this is my command. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. You're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask using my name. So this is my command. Love each other. He's talking to the disciples saying you have to love each other because you, rent, you represent the body of Christ. Jesus knew that the disciples are an eclectic group of people. 
they're, they're so different. I mean, they might be all Jewish, but they're different. We had some that were fishermen, some that were in the hospitality industry, some were crooked tax collectors. I mean, he knew some was physicians. He knew this was such an eclectic group of people and that they were going to struggle to love each other. And he also knew this. He knew that there's no way that they're going to be faithful and be able to remain in Jesus without each other. And that's why he says, this is the command I want you to follow. Love each other the way I've loved you. That's great. Because what that means is this. Our love has to, be, has to go much deeper than just an emotion. Because for us, when we think about love, it's really just this emotion. But again, the love of Jesus is agape love, which is unconditional love that goes far deeper than just your emotion. In fact, the love that Jesus wants you to have is the fulfillment of the great commandment. And the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And when you look at that word neighbor in the New Testament contextually, your neighbor is somebody who's so different from you. Your neighbor are the people that you don't naturally gravitate to. Somebody who might be from a different culture, a different socioeconomic class, a different generation. Your neighbor is actually somebody that you would call your enemy. And Jesus says you are to go and love them. I command you that if you want to remain in me, you got to be able to love those people that you naturally struggle to love. Amen? Amen. Why? Because you don't need Jesus to love people that you like. You don't. It's just natural. But you do need Jesus for people that you don't. And Jesus will prune you and teach you lessons about him and the facets of his love when you're willing to love people who are so different from you in this church. The great thing I love about this church is we're so different. We're so, there's such a diverse community here. We really are. And, uh, you know, last week somebody came for the first time and she's an older person and she's like, can I come here? Everyone's so young here. I'm like, no, 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 I'm old. You can stay. You can come and be here. It's okay. She goes, I don't know if I'll be welcome here. I'm like, no, you are. Trust me. Because it shouldn't be your age that defines you, to, that should determine whether you should be here or not, or your race, or your socioeconomic class. We're all the family of God. And we have to learn to love each other. Can I just give a special shout out to Pastor Shirley's ministry and, and her volunteers for the special needs ministry in our church? Can I give you a shout out? You deserve one. Because you have chosen to love people in this church, a special needs community. These are people that oftentimes are so neglected by our society, and they don't often feel love right away. That's not the first thing. And the parents feel that. The weight of the parents, the heart what the parents feel as a result of that is heavy. And it's heavy in the church. And the fact that you're willing to devote your Sundays to come and to love in our special needs community, I mean, it's really awesome. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for choosing to volunteer and love people that many times, even the people in the church, really struggle to love. But I'm just here to tell you, it's not, we shouldn't just say, well, then it's these like 10 people that should be loving our special needs community. We all have to be willing to do that. Amen? They're a part of our church. They really are. My sister has special needs. I saw how the church neglected her. And please understand, when you tolerate people, that's not love. Toleration is not love. I hope you can stare into the eyes of these amazingly beautiful people in our church that have special needs and realize that when you stare into their eyes, you're going to have an eerie awareness that Jesus is looking right back at you. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to put yourself out there and say, I will? They're going to be a part of my church family. Oh, man, God could do some amazing things. 
Are there people in this church that you avoid? Maybe are there some people in first service you don't like, so that's where you come to second? <laughs> I know that. I understand. I get it. But those are the people that Jesus is calling you to love this year. They're saying, you go and you got to meet those people. Because if you continue to say, well, I'm done, I'm just not going to see these people anymore, then you're making this more about you than about Jesus. And if you really want to understand the height and depth and width and the profound love of God in your life, it doesn't happen until you start to learn to love people that you don't want to love. And that pathway towards forgiving some things that you're going to have to forgive or maybe you're going to have to ask for forgiveness. Can I just thank the, this group of people that decided to, in the summertime, we had an Asian American history course. I want to thank all of our non-Asian people that signed up for this course. You paid for this course. You took eight weeks of your life for this course. And I can't tell you how much that ministers to me because I know part of the reason why you did this was because you come to a church where there's a lot of Asian people. And what it shows me is that you want to do your best to try to love us. Thank you for that. Honestly, it has ministered to me so much when I've heard that's, that there are people that were non-Asians that took that. I just thought it was going to be all Asians that take it. Thank you that you decided to give eight weeks of your life and give money to this and to learn and say, I want to do my best to love my fellow Asian brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you. Really, yeah, that deserves a round of applause. Thank you. Sunita is getting ready to figure out a way where we can do a black history course. And when that comes out, I, wanna, I hope and pray. I took it already. It's, it was phenomenal. I hope that the majority of the people who take this class aren't our black brothers and sisters. I hope it's going to be Asian brothers and sisters, our white brothers and sisters, our Latin brothers and sisters that be willing to take this and learn black history course that these professors in, in, in these colleges are teaching. It's amazing. You're going to be blown away. I hope that you would be open to taking that. Why? So that you can learn to love the black brothers and sisters here in our church. Martin Luther King is next Monday. We're going to be marching on City Hall here in Englewood at 9.30 a.m. I hope many of you will come. If you have the day off and you're off in school, say, Mom, I want to do this. And you would march with us. And then at 11 o'clock, that we would go to Ebenezer Baptist Church and we would worship with our black Christian brothers and sisters in Englewood together, thanking God that he chosen a group of people to come and fight for our civil rights as minorities. That we would honor and love our black brothers and sisters. Not just for that, but when we do that to one another, man, that's bearing fruit. That we would be willing to do that. And I want to encourage you, Black History Month is coming up in February. Could I encourage us as a church, because we have like well over 25 to 27 different countries represented here. Could you say this year, I'm going to do my best to get to know people that are different from me ethnically. That I will do so and I will learn more and I will get to learn to love. You don't know how much your life will be transformed when you put yourself out there and learn. There's so much to learn from the rich diversity that's represented here in this church. Jesus says if we love the people in this church like that, you're going to remain in him. You're going to bear fruit, and you're going to certainly know that you are his beloved. When my son was about 10 years old or so, uh, there was a man in this church. His name is Romolo Rodriguez. we got a picture of Romolo. Just this nice headshot. There he is. Good-looking Dominican man. And uh, he heard me speak about my son, about baseball and stuff, and Romulo play, played baseball all the way up until high school, and he was an excellent athlete. He was a superior athlete, and he heard me, and he said, hey, pastor, do you mind if I just connect with your son one day, and I just want to see where he's at in terms of his baseball skills? I said, sure. So after church on Sunday, I brought him to a field in Leonia, and he just kind of worked him out, 
And he says, you know, I, I think he's got a lot of potential. He said, uh, I'm willing, if you're okay, I'm willing to work with him. Uh, I'm willing to put a lot of time if you're okay with it. And, uh, but he said, but the one thing I know I can't do is I can't teach him how to have a perfect swing. It's just not my gift. I got a friend who's actually a professional hitting coach. If you go to him, I think he's going to be able to develop that swing. And so I was like, are you willing? And I said, yeah. And so he said, you know, I'll do my best to come and work with him regularly. And he did that for so many years. He'd come over to the house doing, making him do crazy things. We had a couple pictures of them working stuff. Like they would do crazy stuff together. And I look, some of the stuff I look, look at what he was doing, I feel bad for Christian. I'm like, man, that's some really tough stuff. He told Christian that elite athletes have to do 50 pull-ups without stopping. He said, if you can't get to 50, you're not an elite athlete. And so he put him on a regimen when he was a kid to get to 50 pull-ups. Crazy. Like during COVID, the dude, he just he's, he gave us a whole schedule, and we worked really hard at it. Romulo would call me after every game, how did he do today? And I said, well, it wasn't so good today. He goes, really? He's all right, let me call him. And he'd call him and encourage him. I said, don't worry about it. It'll be okay. We would have a showcase, and if he didn't do well in the showcase, you know, he would he'd always call me. He's like, text me, send me videos of how he does. And if it didn't go well, I'll be sad. Christian would be sad. And he would call me, like, don't worry about it. It's okay. And he'd have some really good words to comfort me by. And then he would call Christian and have good words for him. It was really great. Romulo passed away about two years ago of cancer. And it was devastating for our family, especially for Christian and myself. And, you know, he believed in him so much that he could play college baseball one day. And this past year, uh, he went to one of the most important showcases of his baseball. And showcases are basically you go and you stand in front of, like, a bunch of college coaches, and they look at you. And this one, there was about 75 college coaches from around the country that came. It was a big one. He trained hard for it. It didn't go that well. It wasn't good. He broke down and cried in the car. I, I sort of cried internally. He didn't really see me, but I was crying inside. I really miss Romolo because I know he would have the right words to say. But it impacted him, I think, Christian so much that he just said to me, he goes, you know, Dad, I think, you know, I'm just going to apply to Rutgers. If I get into Rutgers, I'm just going to go. I'm going to forget about baseball. I said, you sure? He said, yeah. I said, okay, that's fine. So he applied to Rutgers. I said, can I read your essay? I read his essay. And you know what he wrote about? Romolo. And he didn't just write about how he taught him about baseball. That wasn't really what the emphasis was. He said, Romulo taught me how not to be selfish with my life. It was great. I said, hey, you have fall baseball coming up. Just have some fun. He really enjoyed it. He had a great fall season. He's like, you know what? I'm going to just send some emails out to some coaches around here. We'll see what happens, some junior colleges. And so he did. And he heard back from one. Junior college, a Division II, Raritan Community College, Valley Community College. And the coach said, hey, why don't you come? I want to meet you. And so early December, Christian and I went to the college. I had no idea what to expect. And so we sat down with the head coach, and he said, I've been following you. He said, I really like you. I like what you have to offer. He said, you know, you place, you were second team all county. And I was like, really? I didn't know that. I didn't know he was second team all county. And he said, I looked at all your videos. We really like you. My hitting coach saw your swing. He said, you have a really nice swing. He said, I'd love for you to think about coming here and playing for us, not just for playing for us. And he said, I, my hope is that if you come here, 
I'm not going to just take you to play for us, but I want to develop you so that you can go to a four-year college and play at the next level. And I got, like, so excited, and I said, well, listen, you know, um, like, we have to think about it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, take your time. And so I went back, I sat in the car, and I said to him, I said, what do you think? And he goes, oh, no, I'm coming here. And I said, what? I was like, but you said if you get into Rutgers, you're not going to play baseball anymore. And he goes, no, Dad. He goes, if I get into Rutgers, I'm not going to go. I'm going to come here. And I think I know why. Because when I was sitting down listening to this coach speak, I felt like God brought another Romolo into his life. That season beyond just baseball, but says that you can do something here. This man died two years ago. But the love that he showed my son and even me, the fruit of that continues till this day. He invested in him since he was 10 years old. He didn't have to do that. This Dominican man invested in this Korean boy. You guys don't know the kind of impact you can make when you choose to love people in this church that are so different from you. And on this first Sunday of 2024, that's our challenge. Because when we come here on a Sunday and that's it, it's going to be hard. But my hope is that you would say, in this year, I'm going to do my best to get to know people who might be different from me. I'm going to get to know those I kind of avoid at church. But I'm going to learn to love them the best I can. Because when we do that, Jesus says that we're going to bear fruit and we're going to know that he is, that we are truly his beloved. And I pray a blessing upon you for 2024, that you would all be committed to doing that. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. I'd like to really pray for you today on this first Sunday. We're going to have our pastors and our elders and our prayer team pray for you today for a blessing. We do that the first Sunday of every year. We're going to do that. But I want to pray for you today. If you really want to make a conscious effort to remain in Jesus this year, you're going to say, Peter, I'm going to do my best to obey his commandments. I'm going to do my best to love the people in this church. Would you just, like, every head bowed, every eye closed, from the youngest to the old. Would you raise your hand? I just want to pray for you this year that that would happen. Raise your hand high. Don't be ashamed. Yes, beautiful. Anyone else? Anyone else? I see your hands all over the place. You can put them down. Yes. Anyone else? Anyone else? Yes, I see your hand. You can put it down. Anyone else? I see your hand. You can put it down. Anyone else? I see your hand. You can put it down. Yes. Anyone else? I see your hand. Let me put it down. Yeah. And so, God, I want to pray for these that just raised their hands. I pray a special impartation of your spirit to be upon their lives. I pray a blessing upon them as they made this audacious goal to remain in you this year. God, that they would do so and that they would do their best to obey your commandments. And as they do, God, I pray that they would find so much life in it, God. They would fall in love with your commands that they would have such a, an affection for your commandments. And God, that you would help them, Father, to love people in this church, even the ones that they've struggled with. And I want to pray for those, God, that have raised their hands, that, Lord, that you would just use them to just go out and to love those people that maybe they've always struggled to love. Maybe even people that their parents have told them growing up that you really shouldn't connect with these folks. 
I pray, Lord, that they would see the wonder of your love as they learn to love the people in this church. God, would you unite us? Would you allow us to truly be a church that cares and that loves you in everything that we do? And so, God, I just pray that you would watch over everyone in our church. I pray you bless them, and God, that you would allow them to remain in you so they can bear your fruit and know that they are a beloved child of God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.